Hey, welcome, Flatiron Church. We are in our second of uh, what's going to be, I think, six in this part three of John. And last week we looked at uh, Jesus kind of coming onto the scene and feeding the 5,000 plus. I said it's more likely there was about 20,000. And we looked at what happens when you've got uh, trials. This week we're looking at what happens when storms of life uh, appear. What happens when you're going and all of a sudden, well, it's getting pretty dark outside. Um, where's Jesus? And then the storm erupts. Have you ever been there in life? Where all of a sudden you're, you're going forward. You just had a mountaintop experience. You saw Jesus do amazing things within your own life. Disciples, they had just seen Jesus feed the 5,000 plus. Things are going well. They're going to get in the boat right now. And all of a sudden, darkness is going to come. And Jesus isn't going to be there with them right in the boat physically. And then the storm is going to erupt. And some of you, right now, you're in that season where the storms are erupting. Some of you, you're in seasons that the storm has been. You're not kind of coming out of it. And some of you are getting ready to enter a storm. You see it in the distance there, and maybe you're doing everything you can to avoid it. But regardless of where you are today, here's a true thing that's going to happen. Storms will come. How do you prepare? How do you endure? I like to think a lot of it depends on where your eyes are looking. By means of preface, before moving out here, I was uh, a motorcycle rider. Uh, don't judge me. Uh, I like two wheels. I like to go fast. And uh, I also like the freedom that comes with being able to kind of turn and do corners. And the thing is, we lived in Illinois, and we had a country that was far closer to us, and so it was not nearly as uh, risky as it would be if I was riding it today. I, I, got, I sold it right before I moved. But one of the things that you had to do in Illinois to get the license for it is you had to show that you were proficient on the bike. And the, one of the ways that you could do that is you could sign up for a class. It was a 20-hour class at the local college, and basically they would teach you. Uh, you gave them 20 bucks, they teach you, and if you pass their class, you get the $20 back, and you're good to go. You take that DMV, you're good to go. So I did the class. And I learned a lot in that class, but one of the main things I learned in that class is that where your eyes are looking is where your motor motorcycle is going to go. So if you're, in a, if you're in a turn, you know, you're thinking in a car, you got a wheel, and you go this way to go one direction and this way to go the other. On a motorcycle, you've got bars, and, and you, it's not this or this. It's you lean one way or you lean the other. And what directs the temperature of which you lean or the direction with which you lean, the angle with which you lean, is not exactly starting with your arms and your hands. It actually starts with your eyes. Where are you looking? If you're wanting to take a really sharp turn, you're not looking in front of you. You're looking where you want to go. Your hands, your arms will naturally move towards the place your eyes are looking. They gave examples of how new riders, specifically new riders that had a lot of horsepower underneath them, tended to be young men. They like to go fast, uh, but they're not exactly bright. What would happen is they would take those turns, and they'd be taking them too fast, and their eyes, so they would get in these head-on collisions, and a lot of times they were very, uh, they were fatal simply because you're dealing with a small motorcycle going fast against a much larger object. Well, without question, when they would do the kind of report on it and look, okay, what happened? The most odd thing would be true 99% of the time. The motorcycle drove into the oncoming traffic. And you're thinking, were they under the influence of something? Were they distracted? Were they... 
No. Most of the time, it wasn't influence of alcohol or wasn't distracted, for best we could tell. Most of the time, they drove into the oncoming traffic because that's what they were looking at. Think of it. You're taking the curve. There's a truck coming the other way. It's a two-lane road. You're thinking, I don't want to hit that truck. I don't want to hit that truck. That truck's really close. Oh, my, I'm hitting that truck. Well, guess where your eyes have been? On the truck. Not where you needed to go. And that principle's at play here in a lot of things in life. It's not just riding a motorcycle. Some of you are like, I don't know where you're going with this, Brian. Here's where I'm going, big idea. Navigating the storms of life is about eye control, not eye control. That's what it's about. Navigating the storms of life is where you place your eyes far more than how much I can handle it. And you're going to see this today as we jump into our text that the disciples are going to exhibit all manner and style of kind of common responses when storms come. Some of them are going to hit you. Some of them may not. And that's okay. But one of the things you have to keep control over is where you place your eyes when you're in the storm. Let me ask you today, where's the storms in your life? Let me ask you today, where are your eyes looking? Be as honest as you can before the Lord today and allow his word to soften your heart. Be as honest as you can with the Lord and allow his word to soften your heart. Each of us will have storms. That doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Each of us will have storms. That doesn't mean God hates you. Each of us will have storms. That doesn't mean that his plan isn't still good. He's trying, oftentimes in the storms, to teach, to prepare, to equip. Let's take a look here. Verse 16 in chapter 6. This is right after. I mean, literally, the feeding of the 5,000 just happened. It's on the hill. People, they got 12 baskets full. They're like, what in the world just happened? Mountaintop experience. Jesus came through in a big way. Disciples are feeling good. This is where our text picks up. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. The sea is the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. They were on the east side. Now they're heading back west, back towards Jerusalem. Uh, that area is known as Capernaum. Now take a look at this next sentence. It says, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. There's one, one more ingredient here, verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So there's three things we're picking up, right? It's dark. Jesus isn't there. And the storm is coming. It's dark. Can't see anything. Stuff is shrouded. Things that used to be clear are no longer clear. Jesus isn't there. Is that saying Jesus is just totally gone? No, he's just not in the boat with them. And then the third thing, the storms of life have come upon them. Where are you? Have you seen that play out in your life? Lose clarity? Jesus feels distant? Storm hits you? Pay attention. Jesus feels distant oftentimes because even though he's always near, I mean, he never leaves or forsakes us, there is that seasons where sometimes he'll give a lot, he'll allow the bottom of your life to fall out. You think, well, why on earth would a good God and a loving Jesus allow that to happen? Well, seemingly, he's got a more important plan. Seemingly, he sometimes allows those seasons to shape you and change you. We'll look at that later as we ask the question of why did Jesus allow this? Second thing is you're going to notice darkness has crept in. All four Gospels have this story in them. 
John's is one of the briefest. Uh, Matthew actually specifies, he says, this is the fourth watch, which means this is early in the morning, late into the evening. It is way past bedtime, and it is still dark. Third thing we see is the storms are raging. Now, in the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee sits some 600 feet below sea level. And what oftentimes is these storm fronts will move through, and as that cold air descends, it will kick up storms on the surface of this lake. This lake is about 14 miles in diameter. And you can get some extraordinarily strong storms that blow up out of nowhere. So you could have a clear day during the day, clear evening, and all of a sudden as that cold air rushes in, it mixes with the warm water and it blows up a storm. And you could have some pretty big waves. We're talking sinking your boat hyped waves on this sea happen quite often. And here's what begins. You, you put all those recipes together, and what is the response? It's fear. How do I know? Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were excited. <laughs> they were anticipatory. No, they were frightened. They were frightened. They were scared. Jesus comes in. And that moment, and they are terrified. Now, let's take a look. This is what we tend to do. There's several responses we're seeing from the disciples, and I want to see which one hits you today. It might be one of them. It might be all of them. Very rarely is it going to be none of them. If you get to the end of this and you're like, nope, none of those describe me, welcome. Uh, there's a lot of people around you that could use your advice, okay? Um, number one, fear. Fear. Now, the way this is described, rather than just saying they were frightened, is they kept rowing. Did you notice that? Three to four miles. Now, I, we read this and we think, yeah, it's just a little, a little jaunt. Uh, three to four miles. Have you rowed recently? <laughs> Asking for a friend. Have you rowed? In a storm where the waters are doing this? We'd be lucky to make it a quarter of a mile. And that's if something's chasing us. That's like, we're putting all of our heart, sweat, blood, and tears into this thing. Three miles in, you're exhausted. Something really must be driving you. Fear. When fear grips your heart, you'll find that you can go through seasons with less sleep. You can go through seasons... Even though you have less mental clarity, you'll push through. In fact, times at night, you'll stay up, weeks on end, months on end. Fear is a powerful thing. It can drive you to do some incredible things. How do I know they are fearful? They're rowing three to four miles through a storm. That's no simple thing. What's the second thing I'm noticing? Control. You're like, well, how'd you get control out of this? Well, let me just... Other Gospels will say that when they saw Jesus, what made them terrified is they believed they saw a ghost. Now, before we judge our 2,000-year-old ancestors for being those types of people that believe in ghosts, um, if you had been rowing for three to four miles, which again, we just described, most of us wouldn't, but let's say you had, and in the midst of the storms and the darkness around you and the chaos that's overcoming you, and you saw somebody walking on water, most of our responses would be to scream. Most. What does a ghost represent? It represents a power that we have no control over. 
Think about Charles Dickens and the tale he tells when um, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited in the night. Very common tale, right? Three ghosts come to his home. And these ghosts bring a word of truth, but they also bring something else. Something he can't control with his money. He can't push it away. He can't pay it off. He can't make it disappear. Oftentimes when you see this happening within a text, what it's emblematic of or what it's representing is something is outside of your control. It's scary. It's terrifying because you don't know how to manipulate it. You don't know where it goes. My son, Calvin, he was playing his first soccer game in a new league this weekend and Melinda was taking him and she was telling me the story. She was like, you know, driving him to the game, he was pretty nervous. He was pretty uh, worried. Who, who, who are we going to meet? Who am I going to play with? Am I going to make friends? And, and, you know, Melinda was trying to encourage him. Well, we're going to meet people. We're going to play with people and it's gonna, you're going to enjoy it. And all the while, she's kind of like, you know, I don't even know where I'm going either. So we're both kind of fearful on this. <laughs> Isn't that true though? Where we go to, we, why is it hard to try new things? Why is it hard to try new things? Because you're like, I don't know exactly how to anticipate it. I don't know where I'm going to park. I don't know where I'm going to sit. I don't know if I'm going to like this pastor. I don't know if I'm going to like the people in my group. And so it's hard to push in. In this way, there's a, that ghost and that paralyzation that happens is there's a lack of control. Here's the last thing we see is a false confidence. What you have to know about these disciples is some of them were, fish, were fishermen. Not all of them, but all of them knew they lived around the sea. They understood the sea. But a couple of them, they actually did their livelihood through the sea. And these are people who, they understand storms. They understand rowing. They understand what it means to be in the midst of a bad place. And so if you're finding yourself here as a fisherman, um, there's a certain level, there's a threshold you have to kind of get over to be frightened. And what we see here is that the, the, the false confidence is really thinking that the past skill set you have is going to make it through the storm in front of you. And we oftentimes do this. We think, well, I've gone through some hard, life, hard things in life. I've gone through some life-shaping things. So the storm that is in front of me, I just need to rely upon the things I've learned in the past to get me through the present. Sometimes that's true. But have you ever had a storm in your life that completely overwhelms the skill set you currently have? Yeah. Have you ever come across those storms where it's like, okay, Jesus, I, I don't have the answers here. I don't have the ability here. I don't know the way forward here. False confidence is thinking you can do it on your own strength and your own skills with what you already know. There are some storms the Lord will allow you to endure, and it's not that he's being cruel. He's actually trying to deepen the skill set. That means getting to the end of yourself and getting into trusting in him. How do I know? Because these guys, even though they understood storms, even though they understood storm surges, three and a half miles into the storm, they're nowhere closer to the shore. The skills that they have, the abilities they have, have not rendered them to the help they were seeking. And this is what we do, men and women. We allow fear, control, false confidence. When storms of life rage up, that tends to be one of the heart positions or multiple heart positions we run to. Fear. Control, false confidence. Here's how this plays out. This is just a short list of conversations I've had recently in the last couple weeks. Brian, school isn't happening for me. I'm trying to get into this program and, and it, nothing seems to be working and I'm not sure how I'm gonna move forward with my life. 
Brian, the job that I want is not opening for me. I've put out plenty of resumes. I've had countless interviews, and every time I get rejected, and I don't even know why. Brian, I am looking for a girlfriend and or boyfriend, and I keep shooting my shot, and it is getting rejected. And it could be the messenger, but I don't know. And so you've got this constant sense of, am I enough? Will this ever happen? Will love find me? Surgery. Brian, I'm enduring surgery right now, and we're hopeful that it will take care of the issue. Sometimes it actually deals with terminal things where we're trying to make sure and, and steer and, and course correct. We're going through things that could end up taking somebody's life, and the treatment and the medication they're under is not working. Marriages. Several right now who are walking through seasons of life where they're not certain if it's going to go the route of divorce. They're trying. They're working on it, but they're not sure if the other spouse is totally in. Or sometimes I'm working with the spouse, they're not sure they want to fight for it. And all of these things, these are the storms that happen. I didn't include this, but this is another one. Kids, sometimes your, your children are going through mental health crises. Sometimes they're going through things at school. Sometimes they're going through things in relationships they're pursuing. And you're like, this is not right. This is wrong. And I don't know what to do. And I have very little control over it. And I just am sitting in fear and anxiousness. These are some of the storms, and that's just the last week. Where are you today? What are the storms? Maybe they're in the distance, gurgling, and you're doing everything you can to get away from it. Maybe you find yourself in it right now. Have you ever found yourself in a storm and you just want to give up? You're just done. Can I tap out? Some of you are wanting to tap out mentally. Some of you are wanting to tap out physically. You're contemplating things. You're really allowing your heart and mind to go to places. You're like, I don't know if I can talk about this. Here's my question is, does it work to handle those storms of life this way? Because we could live in the ideal, what we should do, but I'm living in the reality. This is what we tend to do. Take a look with me again in verse 19. Does it work? When they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Let me ask you, after three to four miles, were they any closer to shore? No. Three to four miles of rowing, still in the storm. Still in the thick of it. Well, I guess fear didn't help. What about control? Are they able to, to control the environment and surrounding? No, they can't. What about a false confidence? None of those things work. And here's what it begs the question of Jesus. Jesus could have met them on the shore prior to leaving and said, hey, you're about to go through a storm. He could have. Jesus also could have been on the boat with them the whole time. Wouldn't have been so scary, maybe. Here's the last one. Jesus could have, he could have kept the storm from happening in its entirety. And there's nothing in the text indicating that the disciples did anything wrong, by the way. This doesn't seem like it's any kind of punishment. Doesn't seem like, well, they really screwed up the five you know, loaves and two fish, so storms, you're coming. No. They didn't do any... It, they did, this is not Jesus' judgment on them. 
He allows the storm. He allows it. In fact, more than allows it. He purposely doesn't do some of the things that could have brought clarity to the disciples. Why? Here's the big idea. Going back to it, navigating storms of life is about I control, not I control. So where you put your eyes. The thing is, is that Jesus will often use storms in the life of those who believe in him. He often will purpose storms in the life of those who believe in him. He often is growing you through storms in the lives of those who believe in him. And so a smart person once asked me, is there a non-storm path that we can just, it's like a fast pass lane through trials and tribulations? Doesn't seem to be. <laughs> if you find it, let me know. I mean, I think, I think in all, you know, kidding aside, drugs tries to do that for people. That's why a lot of people get addicted to them and get, it's because it's they're trying to avoid the hardships. But the problem is drugs is a temporary fix, if you could even say that. Um, and long-term kills you. I mean, long-term actually takes you down. So, so here's, here's the thing then. Are, do, we, do, do we allow for Jesus, a Jesus that uses storms? Do we allow for, in our faith, a Jesus that will allow us to endure storms, navigate storms, go through storms, to grow us, to shape us, to mold us? And here's what gives me the confidence to say all of these things. Look with me at verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now take a look with me. Jesus walking on the storms of our life. Is he troubled by them? No. Is he overwhelmed by them? No. Is he risk averse to them? No. He is literally walking on the thing that causes you and me to be overwhelmed. He controls it all. And what I love is he doesn't say, Storm's not real, just kidding. He doesn't come to them right at the start, hey, this is what you're about to endure. He doesn't come to them saying, hey, I'm in the boat with you the whole time. He comes to them in the midst as they are about to despair, and he looks at them and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Men and women of Flatiron Church, what I need you to see is that Jesus will meet you in the storm. He does not always take you out of it. He does not always cause you to avoid it. He does not always lift it from you. He meets you in it. Why is that such good news? Because there's nothing to fear when you're looking at Jesus. How do I know? Look with me again, verse 20. It is I, do not be afraid. When Jesus comes into this, all of a sudden the darkness begins to recede. 
His light begins to show a little bit more of what the truth is. His love is beginning to cast out that fear. And how do I know that? Well, John will literally write that earlier in his life in 1 John. Let me go to that passage right now. 1 John 4.18, he says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Do you think when John wrote that, that he had this memory in mind? You think when John wrote that, he could go back into his memory and say, yeah, I remember being in the storm. I remember when darkness was all around me. I remember when Jesus wasn't in the boat. And I remember when we saw him walking on water and we thought he was a ghost. And he comes up to us and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. How many more storms would John go through? How many more storms and seasons would John endure? I can tell you right now, out of all the disciples, he was the one that lived the longest They didn't know how to kill this guy, so they sent him to Patmos. They said, hey, you know what? We're putting you on an island. Hopefully you can't do any damage there. He's like, that's fine. I'll just write a few more books. and I'll send them to the churches. Book of Revelation was written on the island of Patmos. He endured storms. He learned how to find comfort and rest in, in looking at Jesus, even though everything around him was going to chaos. And just like our motorcycle example, the thing is, is when chaos erupts, if that's what you choose to focus on, you will run into it. If that's what you choose to focus on, you will head on collide with the very thing you fear the most. And there is no comfort in those eyes. There's no comfort in the control that we have. But when you look to Jesus, dear brothers and sisters, when you look to him, even in the midst of the storm, especially in the storm, his voice speaks over you. It is I. Do not be afraid. And you think to yourself, but how, how can I not be afraid? There's, there's storms, there's waters, there's darkness, there's, there's uncertainty. And literally, is, Jesus is walking on those things. The things that cause you and I such great consternation, Jesus walks on. And he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And this is good news. Because it says that the Jesus we serve meets us in the storm. The Jesus we serve is not fearful of the storms. The Jesus we serve endures and walks with us in the storms. But here's the thing. It's not enough just to know it. Take a look with me, verse 21. says, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. First time in the story, we've made it back to shore. But did you catch how they made it back to shore? Jesus coming to the boat. They were glad to receive Jesus. And here's the crazy thing I see men and women, I see people building their own ships, trying to navigate storms of life that have overpowered them, that are well beyond them, but they're building their ship in such a way that they don't let Jesus in at all. They're building their ship in such a way they're like, no, I'm just going to endure. I'm going to overcome the fear. I'm going to glob onto my false confidence. I'm going to make sure I push in. And you build a ship, and guess what? Jesus doesn't come in. And it's not because he doesn't want to. You don't want him in the ship with you. 
You're thinking, that sounds crazy, that sounds insane. No, look at verse 21. The disciples were glad to receive him. Not everyone's glad to meet Jesus. Here's how this works for the unbeliever. For the person who doesn't know Jesus, they've built the ship and then they blame God for the storm. Now here's the thing. As non-believers, or as believers, we can kind of do something similar, and this is what happens, is we'll believe him, but then we'll ask questions like, but if you were really good, God, why are you allowing this? If you're really good, why such a violent storm? If you're really good, why such a difficult marriage? Why such difficult kids? Why this health diagnosis? Why am I not making friends? Why is the person I am drawn to not drawn to me? Why am I even here? And you live a joyless life. Because even though you know Jesus, he's not guiding your boat. You are. And you have to repent. And it's not because you have to because he's just vindictive. No. Stop trying to navigate the storms of life on your own strength. You think, that sounds crazy, but don't we? Are you, la- are you glad to see Jesus? Or are you only glad when it's going the way you want it to go? You'll let him in the boat as long as you get to steer it. You'll let him in the boat as long as these types of storms you don't have to endure. That isn't faithfulness. That's still you trying to control. That's still your fear driving you. If it feels like I'm pressing, I am. Because here's what the enemy doesn't want you to see. He can take a room this size and absolutely, Jesus can take a room this size and change the world. He did it with 12 men, and one of those guys betrayed him. But you and I, we often get in our boat and go our own way and very minimally let Jesus steer. If we can start to see that our life was given as a gift, that we were purposed for this time, that we were intended to be used by him for his glory and our joy, and that, that none of that is purposeless. None of those storms are needless. None of those storms are simply because he forgot about us. All of them are to grow us. If we can start to live that way, I'm telling you, watch out. Are the storms going to reduce? No. Probably get bigger ones. Is your joy going to increase? Absolutely. Because you've learned the secrets of navigating conflict and hardship. It's not circumstance, it's trust. And then an unbelieving world that's constantly trying to fill the void with their own ship looks over and says, what in the world? And you invite them to meet the king. You invite them to meet the Jesus who saves. You invite them to meet the one with whom they were created to worship. And so this leads us to our challenges. The first challenge I have is to open up your Bible and to read 
daily. And the reason you need to read daily is because the word of God is what renews your heart and washes over your mind when those storms of life become too much. When darkness has clouded your vision, when fear has gripped your heart. The Psalms, I, I always used to think I'm not a Psalms guy. I was too poetic. Trouble hit in my life. I became a Psalms guy. I love the Psalms now. The Psalms is where I just, I camp out in the Psalms. Put the little voice thing on, you version app, and I just, I let the word of God wash over me. There were seasons where I couldn't get out of bed until I'd listen to Psalms. There are seasons I couldn't go to sleep until I'd listen to Psalms. You're thinking, why are you sharing that? Because you may go through a season like that. You may be in a season like that. Psalm 23 is one of the most amazing Psalms that was ever penned, and it was penned by a man not out of storms, but in storms. It was penned by a guy not who wanted to just create his own boat and keep Jesus distant. No, he created a boat and was constantly inviting Jesus back in. Psalm 23 was written to those who are brokenhearted and find themselves in situations that they're overwhelmed. And again, if that's not you today, journey forth, it's gonna come. If that's not you today, help those around you because somebody that you know and love and care for is in the storm currently. Let me read Psalm 23 for you. It's one of the most brilliant Psalms I've ever read. It begins this way, the Lord is my shepherd, which means we are sheep. Do you know what sheep do? They baa. They get scared. <laughs> they run into chaos and they're stinky. Welcome. That's who we are. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down in what? Rest and safety and security. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He wouldn't have to restore it unless things around you were becoming troubled. But he restores it, and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Think of the imagery of this. You're walking in a, in a valley, which means you are not in a great defensive position. People can see you before you see them. Arrows can be flung before you can respond. Shadows of death are all around you. You're in the storm. You're in it. And the psalmist says, even when I'm in that storm, though, Jesus, I know you lead. Even though I'm in the storm, I know you're near. Christian, the storms will come. It's not because God failed. It's not even because you failed. Sometimes it's discipline, but oftentimes it's just life. Watch how the Lord purposes it. Your rod and your staff, things that are both meant to defend and also correct. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Literally, the enemies are around. They're seeing me feast with you, Jesus. For you have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that last line, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. There's a day coming when you will meet Jesus. And you either trust in the blood of Jesus alone to cover your sins, or you come with a resume that says, I think I'm enough. I think I'm good enough. One leads you to everlasting life with Christ. The other leads you to everlasting damnation apart from Christ. 
But in this life now, when we're making these decisions, it's possible, Christian, to still believe Jesus, but walk in constant fear, control, and false confidence and miss the things God's doing through you. Let Psalm 23 and Psalms like it wash over you. Make yourself a student of the Psalms. Second challenge. Attend a we are flat iron. Some of you have been here for a long time. You're like, I've been here. I know what's going on in this church. Come to the we are flat iron if you haven't. Some of you are brand new. You're like, what is this? It's a chance for you to hear the story of why we planted this church in the desert. God's favor as it's been shown throughout the year and years leading up. And it allows you, more importantly, to, to take that next step in seeking Jesus with others in a similar season of life with you. Some of you are older. You're thinking, are there any older people in here? Yeah, there are. Some of you are younger. You're like, hey, I'm single. Is there any singles in here? Yeah, there are. Some of you are families. Just look around. Yeah, tons. And you get to walk alongside those men and women who are also in a similar season and say, okay, how do I purpose my life for the things God would use me for? And how do I get on mission with what Jesus is already doing? The last point is to repent and believe. It is possible and in fact probable that people will hear this message, know this message, but never actually allow Jesus into the boat. All the while thinking you've got to be the one that's navigating the storms of life. I'm going to give us a chance today to respond to Jesus. I'm going to give us a chance today to put our hope in Jesus. A prayer isn't what saves you, but a prayer is what allows you to express faith that saves you. But here's the thing, it's not just for those who don't know Jesus. If you know Jesus in here and you're in the storm, you're in the season, but you're kind of building the ship and you're angry at God because he's allowing it to happen, I want to give you a chance to repent of that too. And more importantly, believe. What is repentance? It's simply turning from the thing that I was trusting in, going one way and going back to Jesus and saying, your will be done. You have a better path. I don't know how you're going to navigate the storms, but I trust you. And that's what we're going to do right now. Let's bow our heads and respond to Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you that 2,000 years ago, you allowed disciples, having seen mighty works done, having seen absolute, um, just remarkable miracle of 5,000 plus fed, you, you allowed them to get into a boat unawares to travel three to four miles into the sea in darkness, storm, and doubt. Not because you didn't love them. Because you were purposing the storm. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who know you, but they're in it and they're struggling. They're building the ship and they're not sure they want to trust you with it. May they repent and believe. Strengthen them even now, even now, to trust that you're better. Lord, for those who don't know you as king, for those who don't trust you as Lord, for those who haven't acknowledged you as savior, and they built a boat and they're trying to navigate the rough waters that will overwhelm them, would they let you in? they receive you as King and Lord? Would they trust that your finished work on the cross, that you died and were buried in the tomb, rose three days later, and by your blood alone are they reconciled to the God who created them? 
Would they trust that today? And take steps of faith and obedience to that. Lord, in all this, I pray that Flatiron would be a church that generations from now, people are still worshiping Jesus. They don't know our names. They don't know this place, but its impact is still being seen. Thank you. We ask this in your name.